0: Hey Harvest, I'm so excited to be introducing Pastor Ray Kaprowski to you right now. Family stuff first, Ray and his wife Natalie both come from London, Ontario and have been married for nine years. They have four boys aged seven and under, including twins. Wow, right? Ray has been a school teacher and after being called to pastoral work, served just down the road at Stainer Brethren in Christ Church. And then for a few years at Harvest Bible Chapel, Brampton, where he was tapped on the shoulder to train for church planting. And after his training in 2016, he and Natalie and the boys packed their bags and made their way to Ottawa to build a core group and oversee the launch of Harvest Bible Chapel, Ottawa. They launched this past April and Ray's told me that as a newborn church, they are growing in their love for Christ and each other each week. That's a pretty great thing. Here's what you really need to know right now. Ray loves Jesus and his word, and that has made him a passionate preacher of the Bible. And You'll need to fasten your seatbelts and have a good grip on your Bible, but before you do that, welcome Ray warmly as he comes right now.
1: Well, good morning, Harvest Berry. What a blessing it is to be here with you this morning. What a great privilege for my wife Natalie and I and our four boys to come here and minister with you this weekend. Thank you to Pastor Todd and the rest of your elders for extending this invitation to minister with you and to give you a little update of what God is doing in our nation's capital. And and let me just uh, umbrella term that and say God is on the move. God is on the move, and in two weeks, Harvest Bible Chapel, Ottawa, will be seven months old. Come on, seven months old. Yes. And we believe that there are great days ahead, and we are continuing to see God grow. As Pastor Todd said there, God grow a deep love for Him in our hearts, and that, of course, when that's happening, it's going to outflow in your love for one another, and so we appreciate your prayers, and we would ask for more of them, and also would love to see some of you come down, or I guess come up or over, to Ottawa to celebrate as well and see firsthand the work of the Lord in our nation's capital. Well, our text this morning is going to be from John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21, and the title of the message is, A Sign of Sovereignty. A sign of sovereignty, John 6, 16 to 21. And as you turn there, I have a question for you, and it is this. How many of us here have ever asked God for a sign? Okay, hands up. You can't lie in church. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe it's it's something like this. Lord, please just show me a sign of what I'm supposed to do. Uh, Show me a sign of who I'm supposed to marry show me a sign of what job i'm supposed to take or how to get through uh, the trial i'm facing maybe you were asking that on the way to church this morning for something that you are facing today and i think that if we're all honest we will all say that we've done that but what we'll see here in john six is that the signs and miracles that jesus performed they indeed had a crucial purpose but it's not the one that you and I like to think it is. We like to think that the reasons God does signs and miracles is about us and Him giving us what we want and what we are asking Him for. However, this is a crucial point that's going to set the tone for the rest of this morning's message. Signs from God, this is what we have to remember, signs from God are meant to point us back to God. Signs from God are always meant to point us back to God. And each of them are rooted in his glory and are for his glory alone. When God performs a miracle, when God gives a sign, he's doing that to show us something more about him. It's ultimately not about us. It's about him. And the purpose of this specific sign, where Jesus walks on the water, as I'm sure many of us are familiar with, this purpose was to demonstrate his deity, or the fact that he was God, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And he wanted to demonstrate his deity to his disciples by showing his sovereignty over the laws of nature. Now, sovereignty is a big word. So, let's get some clarity, and so we're all going from the same page. You'll see on the screen, Wayne Grudem does a great job of defining sovereignty in his book, Systematic Theology. He says, sovereignty of God is God's exercise of power over his creation. God's sovereignty is his exercise of power over his creation. Let's break that down a little bit more. It is God having supreme power and authority over all things. Okay. God's sovereignty... Is God having supreme power or authority over all things? If I'm going to break that down even more, basic level, it is this. God's in control. God's sovereignty means God is in control. Every detail, every moment, every step. How many of us just needed to be reminded of that this morning? And then you're like, okay, I'm totally good. Right? Yeah, you can pack it up. Wait, there's more. You're going to want to stick around. You see, I don't know about you, church, but I get very comforted in the truth that there is literally nothing that can happen in our lives that God is not sovereign over. You? I got really comforted by that. There is literally nothing that can happen that God does not have sovereignty over. But yet, at the same time, There is no other doctrine that our human flesh fights against more than this one. Wouldn't you agree? The battle of who has control. There's no other doctrine our flesh fights against more than this one. We say things like, I want to have my time, my agenda for things getting done. I want them to get done this way, this way, at this time, in this manner. We say, I want my my kids to behave a certain way. Well, as Pastor Todd said, we have four little boys, seven and under, and sometimes that's only good for 20 seconds, so you can't rely on that. Okay? Can't rely on that. I want them to behave a certain way. I want them to go to a certain school. I want them to make certain friends. Control, control, control. I want things to be going the way I want them to at work. I want my coworkers to treat me the way I think I should be treated. Or this, I want my health to be what I want it to be. I want to get married when I want to get married and to who I want to get married to and I want it in my time. God goes on the back burner. R.C. Sproul, he said it so pointedly, he said this, he says, most Christians will salute the sovereignty of God. They'll say, yeah, they'll recognize it. Yes, God is sovereign. He's in control. That's great. Most Christians salute the sovereignty of God, but we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man. You ever recognize that? We salute the sovereignty of God, but we live out a belief in the sovereignty of man. I have control. I want control. I have to fight for control. My sovereignty. But I'll pay lip service to God's. And what we so often fail to realize, church, is that the sovereignty of God over our lives is a gift. It is a gift that is never meant to be something that is shunned or rejected, but it is always meant to be embraced for our good and for His glory. It's a gift to us. Stop fighting it. And you see, here in this text, just after he's fed the 5,000 we see Jesus showing his power and sovereignty over the laws of nature on the Sea of Galilee. And he shows us two crucial truths that we must embrace as we live out our lives under his sovereignty and face the situations that will come. Two crucial truths that we literally must embrace, church. Let's read and find out. John chapter 6, verses 16 to 21. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Awesome. Let's pray. Father, that is magnificent truth that we just read. Father, forgive us when we skim past that and any part of your word, and do not cease to pause to be in awe of the one who inspired it. Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now you would continue to work among us manifesting your presence by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I pray, Lord, right now that we would humble ourselves under your word. We would ditch any defensiveness we're here with. Father, and we would humble ourselves under the only authority, the only sovereign one. Father, I pray in Christ's name that you would guard my mouth from error today. Father, that you would build your church, that you would save and sanctify in this place. And Lord, whatever distractions we have from this week, whatever uh, attention we want to devote elsewhere right now, I pray we would cast those anxieties on you because you care for us and lay them at the foot of the cross, Father, and willingly, joyfully, and humbly come before you to receive what you would say to your church. Church, if you agree with me, in the name of Jesus Christ, say amen. 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 Well, God is sovereign over my situation. Point number one today is this. I must trust Him through it. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust Him through it. And there's two key areas that we see in the first three verses that we are called to trust Him in. Number one is this, for His timing. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust Him through it for His timing. Look at verses 16 and 17. When evening came... His disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Okay, these two verses are setting the stage for everything else that's going to happen as an outflow of this. Alright, and so we need to get the full context of what's going on. And so in order to do that, we need to look at the parallel Gospels who also describe this incident here. And in the parallel gospel of Matthew chapter 14, we see that immediately after feeding the 5,000, this is what's taking place. Jesus has just fed the 5,000, and immediately after this, he made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of them across to the other side of the lake while Jesus went off to pray. Now that's a key truth we need to remember right there. He made them get in the boat. Okay? Okay. Says, go into the boat and I'm going to meet you. That's why the back half of verse 17 there, you see where it says, it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come. They were expecting him. He told them he's on his way. But then look what happens. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Okay, we've got to try to live in this text to picture what the disciples are facing. You'll see on the screen here. This is the Sea of Galilee. And by the grace of God, I had the privilege of living in Israel um, a few years ago. And I've got to tell you, the Sea of Galilee is about 100 times more beautiful than what you're seeing in that picture right now. It is staggering. And the Sea of Galilee, and, that, and by the way, see all those houses in the top left? That's the city of Tiberias, built on a hill. And so the Sea of Galilee, you'll see there, it's the largest freshwater lake in the Middle East. It's only a few miles wide. It's not very wide. You can see that. And yet, it's about 600 feet below sea level, and it's surrounded, as you can see there, by mountains and hills around the vast majority of it. Okay? Now, as, as beautiful as that looks, as breezy, as pristine as that looks, what happens is this. When the wind starts to blow, what do you think happens? it creates a wind tunnel and so the wind starts to blow and it literally turns up water into a violent storm within minutes this is literally like five minutes later this is what it's gonna look like and that's just the start that wind rips through there it's game over those fishermen know you need to get off and get off fast so John isn't just speaking here in this language of some cool tropical breeze put your head back, enjoy it. What he's depicting here is a violent squall. The, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. There's a good picture of what's starting. In fact, in the parallel gospel writings of Matthew and Mark that describe this incident... Their boat, the disciples' boat, is being described as being battered by the waves, being far out from the land, and that they were straining at the oars. You can imagine that. They're straining at the oars just to make any progress. And just to remind you, at least seven of the disciples in that boat were professional fishermen. They knew how to handle the water. So if they're getting tossed, it's pretty bad they'd lived on the lake the whole life they'd seen storms before so look at that picture and I ask you this question how would you feel in this moment right now if you were a disciple put yourself in their shoes you're in that boat right there and it's just getting worse Jesus remember he's made you get in the boat in his sovereignty knowing that this is coming He made you get in the boat, knowing this was coming. And he said that he would meet up with you. Yet by every physical, or just take a look, by every physical or natural indication, that doesn't seem very likely, because you and everyone else in the boat may not even reach the shore. How's he going to meet up with you? I mean, can you see them? Straining as hard as they can against waves like that, only increasing against the wind that was coming and and crying out in fear. Uh, We can't row anymore. We're exhausted. The waves are too much. The darkness is too thick. The storm is too great. We can't see a way through this. We literally have no control. It's being tossed. No control. I mean, church, can you see them start to wonder and ask the question, does Jesus even care that we're still out here going through this? Does He see us? Is He watching? Does He know? Does He care? I mean, shouldn't, have he, shouldn't he have acted by now? Can we even trust that He's going to come? and do what he said he's going to do. He's taking too long. Moment of vulnerability. Does that sound familiar to anyone in this room? Or is it just me? Asking the same questions. Wondering the same things in the situations we face. Does he even care? Is he at work? Does he see it? Is he in control? I mean, don't we do the same thing, church? When we are in the storm, in the uncertainty, in the darkness, in the trial, when the fear, when the fatigue begin to take their toll on us, we ask the same questions and we cry out the same things. And we begin to feel as though God is taking too long to act in the situations we face and we begin to doubt that he's in control and in his ability to come and help us. And we try so desperately to take matters into our own hands and force our way through it and ultimately end up in danger because of it. So question, what is that for you right now? What's that situation? The fear, what's causing it? The waves battering. The fatigue. Some things that come to mind. Maybe it's in your job. It's causing you to doubt God's sovereignty in that situation you're facing. When you're just waiting for the Lord to act. Wondering, how long, oh Lord? Maybe it's with your health. You've been praying for years. How long do I have to go through the pain? Do you not see? Why have you not acted by now? Maybe it's for some of us, our, our children who are walking away from the Lord. Lord, have you not heard every prayer that I've prayed? How long will you wait? What is that for you right now? It's causing you to doubt that. And yet, church, right in the middle of that, when the waves are battering, when the darkness is deepening, when the fear is increasing when the fatigue feels like it's going to overwhelm you and the hopelessness starts to rear its ugly head right in the middle of that God says this be encouraged Psalm 27:14 He says wait for the Lord wait for the Lord be strong and let your heart take courage and wait for the Lord And he says, Psalm 37, 5, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Don't commit it to your own agenda. Don't commit it to what other people want. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. That will, you know, every time you see will in the Bible, that's a promise. He will act. Commit your way to Him. Say, God, I don't know what you're doing, and this is painful and it hurts, but I trust You, and I commit my way to You, knowing that You will act in your time. See, God in His sovereignty is always in control, completely trustworthy, and will always fulfill what He says that He will do in His time, which is the perfect time for us. Because it's His time for us. Listen, Jesus told the disciples, He said, I'm coming to meet you. It's a done deal when Jesus says, why, why, why? Because Jesus always has the final say. Amen? Your circumstances do not. He does. He said He's coming. He will. And we have to believe this crucial truth right here, that in our waiting, God is working. In our waiting, church, God is working. We have to believe that. If we don't believe that, we get hopeless very quickly. And our fear is replaced by our... Our faith is replaced by our fear. Very quickly. In our waiting, God is working. I love how John Piper puts this. You'll see it on the screen. He says this. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. The strength of patience hangs on our capacity to believe that God is up to something good for us in all our delays and detours. And it may not be what you expect when you see it. It may not be the timing you expect. It may not be how you expect it to work. But it will be the right time because it will be God's time. And we have to believe he's up to something good for us. So let me ask you right now do you believe this and you're waiting right now? Do we have faith in this? Hey, hey, hey. Simple truth right here that's a game changer in our walk with the Lord is this trust God's promises more than your perceptions. Trust God's promises more than your perceptions over a situation but it looks so dark, the waves look so big, the storm looks so bad, and yet God is over it. Trust God's promises more than your perceptions. See, this is what the disciples needed to have the faith to believe right here, and what we must have the faith to believe in and be reminded of. And because God is sovereign over my situation, loves me and is a good father, I must trust Him to act through, not just for His timing, but I must also trust Him to act through it in His way. God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust Him through it for His timing and for His way. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. See, see notice in the first part of verse 19, when they had rowed about three or four miles. Okay, full stop. Once again, we must look to the gospel parallels to fill in the details for us of what's happening here. And you'll see it on the screen. Matthew 14, 24 says this. But the boat by this time, at this moment right here, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. Okay. Now remember, uh, the Sea of Galilee is not that big. Remember that? It's not, it's not going to take very long to get across from one side to the next when you go widthwise. So what do you mean it's a long way from the shore? You know what this shows? This is why it's so key that we get the full context here because it shows they're not just cruising the shoreline here. Where did God in his sovereignty move the boat? Into the middle of the sea into the darkest part, into the fiercest part of the storm where the waves are the greatest and the wind is pounding you without anything blocking it. It's the greatest part of the storm. They couldn't just get out anytime they wanted. These disciples had no control. And we're also told in Matthew fourteen twenty five that it was now the fourth watch of the night. Now the fourth watch of the night, loved ones, is between three a.m. and six a.m. Okay, wait a second. Okay, do the math. When they get in the boat, do you remember? Right after dinner, when he fed the five thousand. Okay, question: How long they been in the boat? It's between three a.m. and six a.m. now. Hours. Professional fishermen. Trained from birth. Hours and nowhere near the land. That'll give you a picture of the intensity of what they're facing and what Jesus is doing. Immediately after he fed the 5,000 and they've been hours struggling, fighting, fearing, fatiguing. And then look what happens. Back half of verse 19. When they rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Did you just read what I just read? Let's read it one more time. We don't want to skip that. They saw Jesus walking. Walking. On the sea. Um, okay. Coming near the boat in the middle of the storm and they were frightened. See, loved ones, here's, here's the danger of being too familiar with Scripture. You know what it is? Familiarity. John MacArthur said this, every word inspired, every word preached. You know what that means? Every word's true. Psalm 1830, if you don't believe me. Every word is true. This means this actually happened. Jesus walked on the sea in a brutal storm. Uh-huh. And here we see this awesome picture of Jesus making himself known to his disciples on his terms. You say, well, how do we know it's his terms? Okay, put ourselves in the role of disciple. Do you honestly think we would have chosen to meet Jesus that way? Okay, let's take that one step further. Do you honestly think that we could have even thought of meeting Jesus that way? He's making Himself and revealing Himself to them on His terms. But instead of recognizing Him for who He was, they became, it says right there, back half of verse 19, they were frightened. They were terrified. And in the Gospel parallels of Matthew and Mark, it says they started to scream out. They're like, He's a ghost! They thought He was a ghost. They didn't even recognize Him. Terrified. Okay. Okay. How do you even okay, how do you even describe this? How do you even try to unpack this? Right? Well, I was gonna try. That whole walking on water thing today, but it just wasn't gonna go bad. So I decided to give us a picture instead. Check this out. I love this picture. Let me go in my office one day. Put yourself in that boat right there. You're one of those disciples. It's the middle of the night in a raging storm and you're terrified. It's totally dark all around, and you're just about out of strength. Waves are tossing your boat all over the place for hours, threatening to break it apart, and there's a good chance by this point you're thinking you're going to die. And then, if that wasn't frightening enough, you see this figure walking towards you, that you think is a ghost. Just put yourself in the boat. What are you feeling right now? This begs the question, as you look at that, why wouldn't Jesus just calm down the wind first? Make sure they got to the other side of the lake safe. And then meet up with them. I mean, wouldn't he, loved ones, wouldn't he have been doing what he promised to do to come and meet them? Yes. Why didn't he just calm the sea down? Um, Instead of sending them through a storm, walking on the water towards them, why, why didn't he just, does this sound familiar? Why didn't he just make it comfortable and easy? Just a little quick jaunt across the lake. See you there, guys. See you in a moment. Why wouldn't he do that? He could have. Why didn't he? Because this. Here's the answer. Even though this right here was not the way the disciples would have liked it. It was the way that Jesus in his sovereignty knew they needed it. Even though this wasn't what they would have liked. It's what Jesus in his sovereignty, knowing their hearts, knew what they needed. Loved ones, be encouraged with this today. God will often withhold what we want so that he can give us what we need. God will often withhold from you and I what we want so that he can give us what we need. And Jesus wanted something much more than for them just to get to the shore. He wanted something much more than just to give them what they were asking for. He wanted their faith in Him to see and believe in who He really was as the Son of God who has authority and sovereignty over all creation, even going to the lengths of suspending supernaturally the law of gravity to reveal this to them. That's how far He went in this case to supernaturally suspend the law of gravity. See, in their way, the disciples just wanted the shore. Just get me to the shore. Get me, then it's going to be okay. If I just get there, then it'll be okay. If I just get this, then it'll be okay. He's like, you just want the shore. In Jesus' way, he wanted their hearts. The shore was just too small a thing. He wanted their heart. He wanted them to know Him. To see Him for who He really was because that changes everything. And even though He had tried to show them His true identity and His power through all of the signs that He performed up to this point, the disciples' hearts were still hard and couldn't recognize Him or His sovereignty over their lives. And quite often, you notice this, loved ones? Quite often, Jesus will take us to the end of ourselves Because it's in those times we see him for who he really is and realize he is all we need. He will take us to the end of ourselves so that he can show us he is all that we need. It's not a comfortable place to be. Quite often it's painful. But it's the best place to be. To know that he is all we need. So how many of us here are asking God to bring us through the trial we're facing or even loved ones, even in the day-to-day stuff, in the so-called mundane? How many of us are asking God to bring us through these things on our terms and in our way, in our marriages? Say, I want this. Hey, God, change my spouse and then we're going to be okay. Mm, wrong prayer. It's Lord, change me that my heart would be for you as my first love. That I would know you're all I need. Maybe for some of us, it's not in our marriages, it's in that sickness, and maybe it's been years. The crippling pain. Another failed test at the doctor. How long, O Lord? How long? And be encouraged, if that's you this morning... Scripture's so clear. It says he holds every one of our tears in a bottle. Doesn't forget them. And he writes every sigh in his book. Because he's a good father. And he loves you. Maybe for some of us it's not the sickness, it's the addiction or the temptation or even in our parenting or in our jobs. And and we try to ask him to fill these things on our time and our agenda, our way, instead of, trusting in His sovereignty and submitting ourselves to His way. John Piper puts it this way. He says, the path of faithfulness is seldom a straight line. Be encouraged. The path of faithfulness is very seldom a straight line. Very rarely is faithfulness just a quick jaunt across the lake. See, God will often not do things the way you think he should. And he will not be forced into meeting our earthly agenda because his agenda for us is always greater and his glory is always the focus of it. Always. And God is sovereign over my situation. I must trust him through it for his timing and for his way. And as we trust Him with that, we are then able to see Him through each part of that trial. God is sovereign over my situation. I must see Him in it. Look at verses 20 and 21. This is the climax. This is what everything to this point has been building towards. Here it is. Look at verse 20 and 21. But He said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take Him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were Going. To which they were going. See, Jesus here finally identifies himself to the disciples after he saw they weren't recognizing him and were frightened and terrified. And notice this, notice this, what happened. After Jesus spoke these words, it overcame the fear the disciples were experiencing. Once they heard his voice, saw that it was Jesus, and knew that he was with them, they were filled with what? What does it say? They gladly, verse 20, took him into the boat, eagerly inviting him into the boat with them. Notice what happened there. His words, it is I do not be afraid, and his presence. What did that do? Had brought his peace and gladness to them right in the middle of the storm. It was still a storm at this point. But his words and his presence brought his peace and gladness right into the middle of the storm. And know this, they still do today. They still do today. And then look what happens next. Verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. What? Immediately the boat which was in the middle of the lake, is now at the land to which they were going. Okay, so just so we get the magnitude of this, I looked up the Greek word for immediately. Do you know what it means? Immediately. The boat was immediately at the shore. Miracle number two. Awesome. okay guys, I'm in the boat, you're good, start to unpack, it's been hours, done, why, see to get the full picture of what's happening here after Jesus gets in the boat and the wind stops, we need to go to Matthew 14 again, the parallel gospel, Matthew 14, 33 says this, and those in the boat worshipped him. See the response? He gets in the boat, and they worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. There's the climax. That's what he was going for. That's what he was going for. See, notice here, notice in that statement right there. Immediately the boat, verse 21, was at the land to which they were going. And they worshipped him here in Matthew 14, 33, and did you notice there's no mention of the shore? The very thing they were so focused on asking for, just get me to the shore, get me to the shore. If I just get this, I'll be okay. If I just get this, I'll be, if I just get over there, I'll be okay. No mention of that. Why? Why? Because they were in the presence of God. That changes everything. And the shore just becomes too small a thing that thing that seems like such a good thing that we're begging God for becomes oblivious in the presence of God when we get God himself and at this moment Jesus had their hearts and they didn't understand it completely yet it wasn't here we're going to know all about his deity until his death and resurrection but in this moment he had their hearts and my question is church is this does he have yours Does he have yours in that situation you're walking through right now? Does he have yours in that trial? Does he have yours in the day-to-day? Does he have your heart? Or are you and I still pursuing the shore as our greatest outcome? What is it? What's your shoreline? And all of a sudden, the shore, the very outcome they had been so focused on getting became too small a thing for them to pursue in comparison to God's glory that was right in front of them in the storm, and they worshipped. Question, are you and I worshipping in the storm right now? In the uncertainty? In the trial? Are we worshipping right in the middle of that? And knowing the presence of the Lord? See, the truth is this. The worst possible outcome we could ever have in any situation is this. Getting what we're asking for, but miss getting Jesus in the process. The worst possible outcome in whatever situation we face is getting the outcome we're asking for, the thing, the shoreline, but miss getting Jesus in the process. Let's break it down. Getting your health is too small a thing. Getting that provision you're asking for, maybe a spouse, maybe finances, maybe a job, maybe children, it's too small a thing. And I know it can be painful And there's storms that we're facing, but it's too small. Planting a church, Ray, is just too small a thing. If we could drill that question down a little bit deeper, it'd be this. If Jesus Christ never gave you anything else except the promise of eternal life with Him, If He never gave you anything else except the promise of eternal life with Him, would it be enough for you? Careful how you answer. It's what He wants for you, and He'll take you up on it. Let's drill that down deeper, and it is this. Is Jesus Christ enough for you? if the health doesn't come? If the kids aren't there? If the loved one isn't saved? Is he enough? You see, God always has a greater work in mind as we go through the situations we face, and that greater work is Him. He is the greatest outcome. And in His presence, as the disciples found out here, there is lasting peace. There is lasting rest, hope, joy, protection, relief. There is nothing else. There is no other outcome. There's no other shoreline, no matter how much this culture promises it will, that can offer this. There is literally nothing else that can replace your anxiety and replace it with peace. There is nothing else that can take your crippling fear and replace it with faith that can take your hopelessness and doubt and replace it with hope. There's nothing else can do it. And if, that's, if, that's, if you're in that place this morning, say, I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Okay, let me just ask you a question. Simple question is this. How's it working for you, chasing anything else? If those things that culture says are really going to satisfy, why do we have to keep going back to them for the next trying to fulfill it? They can't. There's a longing for eternity in our hearts that can only be filled by eternity itself. And when we see Him, we find His strength, our fears are defeated, and His glory is shown in our lives as we worship Him saying, truly you are the Son of God, right in the middle of the storm. That's powerful. That's life-changing and life-giving. Right there. So how about you? Last question today. How about me? What are you looking at as your greatest outcome? What's your greatest shoreline in those situations you're facing? Drill down a little bit. Write down that one thing right now that just keeps coming to mind. What is it for you? Just write it down. What am I pursuing with more of a pursuit as the greatest outcome than Christ himself? What is it? Just write it down. One thing. You see, getting to the shore, loved ones, is just too small a thing. Are you getting him are you getting him by putting your faith in him alone and drawing near to him through his word through prayer through worship right in the middle of what you're facing are you getting him and maybe you're here and your first step today is get, to getting him is to confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to repent of your sin that separates you from him and believe that he came to earth as fully God and fully man and paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross in his greatest act of sovereignty of all time. And the Bible is so clear that today, today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. It is he who says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Stop running. Don't be afraid. And if you're here and you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, and maybe you're, you've begun to trust in other things, pursuing other outcomes. And now he's calling you back right now through his word to repent and trust in his sovereignty to show you that he can still be trusted, he can still be seen, and he still says, It is I, loved one, do not be afraid. How will you respond today? Let's pray. Father, the truth of your word is penetrating. Father, it is life-changing. It is life-giving. And God, where else are we going to go but you? Where else are we going to go? There's nothing else that gives life. There's nothing else that gives peace, healing, strength, faith. You say in John 10.10, you say, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to abundance, but the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Father, I pray right now, those things that we are pursuing that are not you as our greatest love, as our greatest pursuit, God, we would bring them before you right now and repenting of them and asking for you to be our first love and take your rightful place. God, that we would sing, as we sing this last song right now, it would not just be words on a screen, it would be the anthem of our heart to say, Though the storms rise, my anchor is going to hold in the veil. When the darkness falls, I don't have to be afraid. My God is with me. My God is for me. My God loves me. And who can stand against me? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.